That's Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now I'm told that in a, there is a moment in any human conflict where silence falls over the battlefield. And people who've been in such situations rarely speak about it, but an acquaintance of mine recently shared the experience with me. And it had been a particularly unpleasant and bloody conflict, very um, personal. And he spoke of men standing in silence, lost in their own thoughts, with what he described as an eerie stillness after the furious engagement. I guess filmmakers seek to capture such moments, the final scenes of Lord of the Rings or Gladiator or Saving Private Ryan. But as I've thought about this closing encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees and all the establishment rulers, really, of Jerusalem, there is this similar silence that seems to reign at the end of this part of the gospel. No one was able to answer him a word. From that day, no one dared ask him any more questions. Of course, it's not a bloody conflict. The wounds are not fleshly. People aren't covered in blood. The stakes are much higher, actually, than mere territory or possessions. We're talking about spiritual battle, really, the future of God's work, eternity, the destiny of men and women. For the last hours, days even, Jesus has stood as one man against what can only be described as a tag team of opponents. It's the Tuesday of the week of his crucifixion. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the time of year where up to a million people descended on the temple for the festival. He is in the temple. And one person has stepped forward to question his authority, and then another has sought to entangle him with an intractable problem. Yet another has come out of the shadows, darting in and asked him a question about the resurrection. And the tag team appear almost like the Persian emperor's immortals, one after another after another. And even then, his listeners 
gathered in the religiously fervent crowd, marveled at Jesus' wisdom, were astonished at his teaching as people have been ever since, were in awe of his energy and vigor and acuteness and alertness. And we can imagine the word spreading out through whatever social media channel was available as more and more of the vast crowds heard of what was going on. And finally, the Pharisees send what some translations call an expert in the law. Verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, an expert in the law, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Matthew uh, uses a unique word in his gospel at this point to describe this expert in the law. He only uses it on this occasion, which is why some of the translations say this is an expert in the law. And so I think we're to have in mind somebody who's had a lifetime of study in the law of Moses and the Old Testament, this one surely, this champion, it's almost like David and Goliath, this great champion, Sir Benjamin Isaacson, KC, he'll be able to best Jesus. And the champion asks this question. Jesus responds with questions of his own. And then silence falls. We don't come across the Pharisees again until we read in chapter 26, they are plotting to kill him. Two very simple points and a couple of reflections. The heart of the law hangs on the love of God. The love of God hangs on the love of Jesus. The love of God. The question asked to Jesus is a live one. Apparently, the Pharisees and their lawyers spent their life discussing such matters. And when we look at chapter 23 next week, we'll see this really is what they're all about. Uh, Detailed instruction of the law and preoccupation with it. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Apparently, some would have answered by expecting Jesus to speak about circumcision. Others would have answered that question by Sabbath regulation, and still others around tithing and fasting and and, and so forth. And Jesus refuses to get embroiled in what we might call the nitty-gritty of their legal minutiae. Instead, he insists that the whole Bible the law and the prophets, literally hangs like a coat on a peg on this matter of love of God and love of neighbor. Those two things undergird the whole of the scriptures. Verse 37 is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's what's known as the Shema. Verse 39 is a quotation from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. He said to them, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind is to love God with all. It would be possible, wouldn't it, to become overly preoccupied with fine definitions of heart, 
mind and soul. The heart in the Hebrew world represents the intellect just as much as the emotion. The soul is the essential being, the psyche. The mind suggests the center of a person's will, compelling action. Some places we have heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love is never a mere emotion or a feeling of affection in the Bible. It speaks of absolute devotion without reservation. Love issues from reason, from the essential being, from the strength and will of a person. So it might be possible to try and disentangle heart, mind, and soul. But I think that slightly misses the point, doesn't it? There's to be no single part of me that doesn't love God. There's to be absolute devotion without reservation. Thinking about the Shema, I think, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, helps. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. These words I command shall be on your heart. So total commitment to God flows from the sole sovereignty of God, the unreserved love of God, from the unsurpassed lordship of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Undivided devotion to the indivisible God, you might say. If 5% of me secretly loves my work more than God, or the kudos I gain from through being written up in the industry journal more than God, or if 15% of my first love is really devoted to such and such a relationship, or such and such a soccer team, or such and such a possession, or such and such a social media, then the 100% God isn't being loved with the 100% being. And if God alone is one, and God alone is Lord, and God alone is good, and God alone loves us unreservedly and undeservedly, then God alone deserves all of my unreserved love. There's to be no idolatry, no adultery, no divided interest, no mixed portfolio, no pot puri of alternative suitors. doesn't mean that I shouldn't enjoy the long list of created blessings that God has lavished upon us or find pleasure in the good gifts that he's given or take delight in his creation. But all under the lordship of God, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So I'm not like some desperate circus plate spinner trying to keep a whole load of equal um, priorities in uh, in the air at once or, or, or some distracted juggler on the embankment desperately trying to hold the whole thing together. Apparently, it's unlikely that any of the Pharisees would have answered the question this way. Uh, yes, they carried the Shema of one of, as one of three texts in a little leather box attached by string to the forehead and their forearm. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. Yes, they were 
written on the doorposts of a Jewish house and on the front gates. You'll see them if you have friends who are serious about their Jewish faith. You'll see them there. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And yes, they were taught to the little children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. But they become preoccupied with the nitty-gritty of the law, as we'll see next week, and totally miss the wood for the trees. What Jesus does next is very striking, isn't it? He was asked, what is the great commandment? But he now puts Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, a second is like it, equal to it almost. The two stand together, they cohere. The first without the second is inconceivable. The second without the first is impossible. Uh, Simply to adopt a disciplined determination to be good to my neighbor through gritted teeth, that's not what it's all about. If God is one and God is good and God loves me and my neighbor, then if I love God and he loves my neighbor, inevitably I will love my neighbor with a God-like love. God will teach me to love and he loves my neighbor undeservedly, unreservedly. And so my love towards my neighbor will be rightly defined by God and his love. As I learn to love, he who is preeminently lovable will teach me steadfast love and gentleness and kindness and goodness. As I experience it vertically, it gets worked out horizontally. Can't really understand loving your neighbor without loving God. Just doesn't really make sense. Certainly not adequate. One writer says this, God alone is incentive for such abandonment. And then verse 40 is quite extraordinary. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is the whole of the Old Testament. The word to depend is the word for hanging something on a peg. I was thinking of bringing, you know, a peg and whacking it up on the wall here. I'd be in terrible trouble with the authorities if I were to do that. And, you know, hanging a coat on it. And that's the whole thing hangs on the love of God and then the love of neighbor. The whole revelation of God demands a heart religion marked by total allegiance to God. Without these, the Bible is sterile. Just a rule book, dry ethic, dull subservient obedience. That's not what the Bible's about at all. Remove the love of God, we remove the true definition of love. Remove the love of God, we remove the driving motivation to love. Remove the love of God, we remove the pulsating heart of the whole of the Bible and all of Christian religion. So now it's worth standing back and marveling at Jesus, I think. See what he's done. They've employed their best man, the expert in the law, Sir Benjamin Isaacson. He's Ask the intractable question. In their 
gamed scenario, Jesus ought to have worked this through with, well, two or three hours, five or six hours, several days worth of further discussion. He cut straight through it all. And I have to say, I marvel at his restraint, his lack of indulgence in debate, his discipline, his originality, his, alert, his acuteness, intellectual ability, spiritual sight. This doesn't mean the whole Old Testament law can be discounted or the whole Old Testament law can be done away with. No. But the whole Old Testament is sterile without it. And the whole Old Testament speaks of a heart religion marked by total allegiance. The whole Old Testament is about a love affair between God and humanity. And if we don't respond to the indivisible God with an unreserved love, we've missed the whole point of it. Over the years uh, here in the city, I've lost count of the number of social events that I've been invited to in order to speak of the Lord Jesus for a few minutes and then take questions. One particular individual used to block out in his work diary three, two half-hour engagements a week and invite colleagues to come out and largely, he said, to talk about their career. That's what they seemed to be primarily interested in, but he would ask them about all sorts of things, raise no particular agenda and just find out about them and get to know them. Two half-hour coffee breaks in the week doesn't seem too bad. And once every six months, he would then invite all those he'd invited to coffee to come to lunch in somewhere or other. The lunch was always very good. I never got to taste it because they would ask questions. I'd give my five minutes piece and they would then ask questions. So he sat with all these courses, you know, slightly trying not to drool as they came past. But we were too busy engaged in the back and forth. And over and over and over again, city men and women, I've led a decent life. I'm not really that bad. And over and over and over again, what do you think the greatest command in the Bible is? And over and over and over again, something which would be a lowest common denominator expression of the last six of the Ten Commandments, a lowest common denominator, love of neighbor. Never. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And then with the love that the God of steadfast love and faithfulness has expressed towards us, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what Jesus does next is quite extraordinary. We could spend the rest of the morning and most of the afternoon just talking about the implications of the way he answers this question. I think that would be fundamentally to miss Matthew's point. Matthew is our teacher. We are in his seminary, you might say, and he is instructing us 
about the Lord Jesus. And what Matthew determines to do next is to put this final piece where Jesus answers the question. We've no idea whether there weren't then another series of things going on, but he determines to put that next question in. And I think his point is this. Yes, the heart of the law hangs on the love of God, but the heart of the love of God hangs on the love of Jesus. Jesus goes on the offensive in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, so up to now, we've had the Pharisees questioning Jesus. They've been indignant at Jesus. They've sought to arrest Jesus. They've challenged Jesus at every point. The entire establishment religion of the day, royal, political, legal, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, chief priests, they've questioned him on paying taxes. They've questioned him on the resurrection. They've questioned him now on the law. Jesus now goes on the offensive and he turns to the most important question in the room. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And he asks them three questions. Who do you, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? That's really one question. How is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, the Pharisees provide a stock answer to the first question. He's the son of David. Jesus then quotes from the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament, Psalm 110. Please turn back there if you would. Keep a finger in Matthew chapter 22. It should be on page 611, 611. Jesus assumes David is the author because... The psalm at the top there says that David is the author. Let me ask a question, if I may. As we look at verse 1 together, how many individuals can you see in verse 1? Okay, heads down. How many individuals can you see here? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay, well, I can spot one. I think we can all manage that. The Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the creator of the heavens and earth. That's the Lord who is one, the one, the only, the true Lord, sovereign creator of the universe. The Lord says to my, that must be David. David's the author of the psalm. The Lord says to my, Lord, there's a third figure. So there is David, there is the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of the universe. Then there's this third figure. What of this third figure? What does God, the creator of the universe, say to this third figure? Last summer, I had the joy of being on holiday with some individuals who were about to take their GCSEs, and I'd forgotten all about your GCSEs and all that sort of stuff, largely because I was so appallingly poor in my own. But... I want you to imagine it were June for a moment and you were about to sit a GCSE in this psalm 
and you were asked this question, what does the Lord, the creator of the universe, say to the one whom David, King David, calls his own Lord? Well, he is the one to whom all God's enemies are subject. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is the one who holds a position of everlasting rule. Sit at my right hand. He is the one to whom all peoples will come in joyful surrender. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's a a rod of rule. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. He is the one who judges and destroys all of God's enemies. He is the one who is handed a place in God's throne, throne room to reign on the throne alongside God forever and ever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal rule, an eternal priesthood, an eternal king enthroned alongside God, the creator of the universe. And King David recognizes this third figure who is triumphant, whose rule spans the ages, who is given all authority in heaven and on earth. I hope it won't surprise you to know that we plan our Sunday services. I don't know if you've spotted any kind of planning about it. It doesn't sort of just come together on a Sunday morning. Sometimes it doesn't just come together even when we plan them. But we, we meet several weeks in advance and we chat about the passage and the preacher, myself in this case, has to bring to the group of musicians and service leaders and so forth the passage we're going to talk about. And I brought them this question. I I said this, um, is this third figure, do you consider him to be divine? Now, they looked at me as if I were about to be awarded less than a one at GCSE. Is there such a thing as less than a one? A half at GCSE. Of course he's divine, was basic. I mean, they were polite enough not quite to say it like that. Here is Derek Kidner. If you haven't got Derek Kidner on the Psalms and you want to read the Psalms, it's, he's absolutely brilliant. David here, so to speak, falls down and worships the man who stands before him. Greater than the angels. Exalted emphatically. Reigning as savior and intercessor. Seated, a finished task, awaiting the final surrender. Verse 1, this single verse displays the divine person of Christ, his power, and the prospect before him. So Jesus sent them away to chew on this. Who is this third figure? Should you not be expecting God himself to step into his world, the one to whom all authority and power and splendor and glory and majesty for all eternity will be handed, who will rule over every authority and power and dominion in everlasting glory?
So you put their question, what's the greatest command? And Jesus' answer, and Jesus' question together, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like this, equal, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They cohere, they stand together. The first without the second is inconceivable. The second without the first is impossible. God alone is incentive for such abandonment, absolute devotion without reservation. There is only one God. He is Lord of all. We are to love him unreservedly because he deserves our unreserved love. The whole of the law and the prophets, the whole of the scriptures, everything that God has revealed about himself hangs on the love of God and the love of neighbor. The Bible story is, if you like, a love affair between God and humanity. Everything can be summed up in this one commandment with its two parts. But if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and if Jesus is given divine rule, then the whole of the law and the prophets hangs on the love of Jesus. The love of neighbor is not possible without the love of Jesus. The love of God is not possible without the love of Jesus. Unreserved, absolute devotion without reservation towards Jesus. And the implications for us are huge. I mean, just flat on the page, if you take these two little blocks of material together side by side, the implications are huge. I was at a social event recently, met an absolutely charming individual, entirely upright. A huge amount of his life has been devoted to public service, a huge amount. We got chatting about, I mean, he wanted to know what I did. He started talking about his views of the church and the Church of England in particular. I really appreciate what the church does for community and social cohesion. But really, my kind of Christianity, I suppose I'm sort of the conservative party at prayer. He didn't quite say, I'm like our foreign secretary, current foreign secretary, David Cameron, said when he was prime minister, I'm just the most hopelessly wishy-washy sort of Church of England Christian. But that's really what he meant. And I wish I'd had the acuteness of Jesus at that moment to say, what do you think the greatest commandment is? And who do you think Jesus is? To love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength? Love Jesus? What do you think the greatest sin in the book is? If the greatest command, how can we call ourselves Christian? in a wishy-washy sort of way. And then that leaves us saying, well, what about my failure? And all of us will imagine having to speak on this yourself publicly. What, what a fraud one feels. And yet you then see Jesus is going to his death and there he's going to carry God's judgment at our failure and be raised to new life. He reigns now in eternity. And so as I come to him with my failure at the foot of the cross, he's worthy of such love. 
But almost to go to us straight away, as I've just done, misses the point Matthew is, is making. This, this is Israel. This is Jerusalem. This is where the whole of God's revelation has been going up to this point. And Jesus' opponents, why they're seeking to entrap him, to crucify him. And Jesus has just held up the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God. And then he is asked us to consider his own divinity. And so the failure of Jerusalem and of Israel and all attention now focuses on Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And as from this moment, if you like, Jerusalem, Israel, the first century people of God become, well, it's too strong to say become an irrelevance, but if you like, a, a find a bypassed in the purpose of God and his kingdom. And it's now all about Jesus. And all authority has been given to him. And his name is going to be proclaimed across the globe. And his enemies will be brought under his feet. And he will rule for all eternity. And if we are wise, we will surrender to him. Let's pray together. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for your undeserved and unreserved love for this world. We praise you for your steadfast love that stands through the pages of scripture and on into eternity. We praise you for Jesus, his majesty and splendor, his glory, his authority we ask that in your kindness you would move each one of us to love him more as we see him in his name. Amen.